Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. Today I'm going to be talking to Shashi Shaker and Pamela Vold, authors of the Essential Knowledge series titled Spatial Computing. Shashi is the McKnight Distinguished Professor in the Department of Computer Science and Engineering at the University of Minnesota, and Pamela is a writer and communications professional also based in Minnesota. Spatial Computing was published in February of this year and is part of the MIT Press Essential Knowledge series. I talked to them about some of the ethical questions surrounding this kind of technology, as well as how spatial computing is being used to respond to COVID-19. Thanks for speaking to me today. I hope you both well. I was wondering if before we get started, you could both briefly introduce yourselves uh, and then I guess for those that aren't aware, introduces to spatial computing and what that term means. I think most people will be very aware with different forms of technologies just through having used them, but maybe you could give a, an overview for what is and isn't encompassed by that term. Pamela, do you want to go first? Uh, sure. So my name is Pamela Vold. I'm a writer and a communications professional, and I work in healthcare communications currently and have a background in writing for academics as well. So I collaborated with Shashi on the book. And Shashi, why don't you go ahead? All right. My name is Shashi Shekhar. I am with computer science faculty at the University of Minnesota. And my research and teaching as well as service has been linked to spatial computing for last three decades. Uh, Easiest way to think about spatial computing is to look at the intersection between computing and data that has location, whether it is the sensors or remote sensing satellite imagery or your smartphone apps such um, for navigation, ride sharing, and many others. Mm -hmm. But if you dig deeper, it turns out that one size fit all computing often doesn't do very well with spatial data, the data with locations. over years, uh, people have developed more powerful techniques by generalizing the one-size-fit-all techniques to process the spatial data better. So in the book and in more technical sense, we are focused on those uh, new and more powerful techniques under the umbrella of spatial computing. I think I would add that uh, some people, when they've seen the title of the book, have tripped over the word spatial. And I think it's important to call out that what we mean is just location some people, when they see the reference to maps and mapping related to spatial, they think, why don't you call it geographic computing? But um, we are talking about spaces, which is not just geography, because a space could be outer space, it could be a tennis court, or it could be inside the human body. Yeah, inner space, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, could you maybe elaborate on that distinction using some examples of different types of spatial computing that people will already be familiar with. Yeah, we talk about this in the book that, you know, we might talk about spatial computing is in in terms of maps or geographies, right? Um, Well, certainly now when we think about where um, you'll see a lot of maps about COVID cases uh, around the world or around different countries and where they're localized. But um, that's not all that encompasses spatial computing. Uh, We also map out uh, professional soccer players, map out a soccer pitch, um, and they study the spaces there and where the players move on that pitch during the course of a game to improve uh, the the way the players play. 
but then also to think about, are they hitting their marks? Are they going to the appropriate places? How frequently are they getting tired? Um, and then also in the field of medicine, we're seeing brain surgeons map out the human brain so that they can you know, sort of chart their course in doing a surgery to go in and out um, and um, minimize any damage to the human body in the process. Even at um, you know, smaller scale scales, uh, if you look at silicon chips, which are used to make computers, people look at uh, the defect distribution on those chips and look for hot spots. So those areas of chip, you know, a silicon chip may not be used because you may have more faults there. So space, um, the, the scale can vary quite a bit. You know, most of us are used to geographic scale in our day-to-day -day life. Um, but the reason we use the word spatial is because the spaces could be different. They could be nano, micro, right, or within human body. Or and object. even in outer space, you know, if we think about uh, trying to find water on Mars, that's that's a different space that we're using as well. I mean, this is a, a really interesting time to talk to you guys because everyone is hyper aware of the kind of spatial dimension to their life in a very uh kind of micro way in their interactions with the people as well as on a huge geographic scale with um, COVID-19. Uh, and I was hoping you could explain some of the different ways that spatial computing is being deployed to respond to what's happening. So maybe we can first start with the most familiar maps. And I think, Pamela, you may want to talk about what Johns uh, Hopkins has put out in terms of tracking the, the incidence of COVID-19 Sure, I can mention that. So I, I mentioned before that I work in healthcare communications and um, I'm part of our command center, which is how we run our central operations during this time. Uh, and it's a group of people that meet together from different areas of the organization, like supply chain and you know the acute sites and the clinic sites. And one of the tools that we use in our command center is one of a map that Johns Hopkins has created that shows um, COVID cases around the world. And it's a proportional dot map. So the size of the dots are larger based on how many cases there are in that area. And so you, you get somewhat of a sense of what the state is uh, nationally and around the world. But one of the caveats to using tools like that is that if you look at the United States, for example, you're gonna see dots all over the place and it looks like there's a huge problem here. And then you look at the size of a dot that's just to the south of, south of the US in Mexico and you think, well, Mexico looks like they've got it relatively contained there, but we have to look at what kind of data is going into that map. So if it's just the reported cases, how, what, what does the data set look like and how are we getting that data? Is it reliable so that it can paint one picture and then it can paint a different picture as well once you realize what's in there. So we have to understand the limitations of the data and what's being displayed and what we're using. And beyond this map, uh, there are other things people are discussing, particularly um, the smartphones. As, as we know, last 10 years, our smartphones are location aware, right? That's how we use navigation and ride sharing uh, services. But uh, the location traces of our smartphones have been collected for a while uh, for different purposes. But in case of COVID-19, uh, people are using that data for two or three different purposes. Uh, one is you know, the proposal about contact tracing. So even Apple and Google have now announced that using the Bluetooth, 
a smartphone can keep track of other smartphones which were nearby. So in case a person tests positive later, then that person can choose to inform others who were in, in uh, vicinity in the last few days. And this is done in a privacy protected manner. So the cell phone IDs are encrypted and, and no one knows the ID of you know, each other, but, but there is a communication. Now this has um, gotten a little bit of pushback in recent days um, and public health community is thinking of maybe going more with the manual approach. But this debate is not settled. Probably there is a middle ground where this data helps the manual uh, contact tracers prioritize cases. But beyond that, there are other cases which are not controversial at all. For example, uh, the policymakers are very interested in understanding the effect of the interventions, such as social distancing or stay at home on people's mobility. The traditional data sets are very coarse. And uh, so they are very willing to look at the smartphone location traces data at a very coarse level. And uh, there are a number of companies who are sharing that data in aggregated form. And looking at that, you can compare the mobility um, before the intervention and after the intervention to assess if um, the degree of mobility and therefore the number of contacts are going down um, and, and how do they compare with the target, right? Um, furthermore, people who are uh, working on disease transmission dynamics models to project how many people are going to get infected, they are also very interested in this mobility data because um, mobility is a key input to such models. You know, they essentially want to estimate how many contacts are happening, uh, how much the interventions are reducing those, and then based on that, they project how many further infections will happen. So even the disease dynamics um, you know, modelers are very interested in looking at smartphone data to assess uh, how the mobility is affected in their own local areas. You know, the only other option right now is to use the data sets from other countries like Europe who have already gone through this, but it's better to use more local data. So there are a variety of ways uh, smartphones are being used um, and the locations are being used. Um, and even people, some people are making risk maps. So they are using smartphone and apps to um, encourage people to self-report in a privacy-protected manner. And based on those symptoms or even positive test self-reports, um, and then they combine it with the other um, Johns Hopkins-like maps to create a very highly detailed risk map at the level of not just counties, but even census block to give people a sense of where the activity is. It's um, doubtless a really helpful set of techniques to address the pandemic and, and how to treat it and how to understand it. But one thing that does come with these kind of technologies and not, and not just the pandemic applications, but generally is a concerns, some legitimate, some otherwise about the relationship between spatial computing and surveillance. Um, and I was wondering if you could both talk about how you feel about that relationship, how you understand it, and how you think through it uh, in your research? So uh, spatial computing is now used by billions of people, right? This is a really remarkable change from last century where only a few million people use it. Right? So anything that's used by billions of people starts to affect many spheres of our society. And in this privacy debate, there are at least three different sides we should think about. There is certainly the civil society side, and uh, it's important to preserve our location privacy because um, you know, the risks are high. It can be abused. Um, 
for in a variety of reasons. But then there is another side which was just brought up the surveillance which I broadly call the national security side and public health such as the COVID-19 pandemic is part of that and there are other parts. Particularly in cases of emergency, you know, that viewpoint has to be taken seriously because uh, sharing some of our location data, you know, not all of it, in a maybe an aggregated manner can make a very big difference in managing pandemics and, and other national emergencies. Um, and in fact, there has been progress, okay? Our society, these things have been debated for decades and, and we have made progress. We need not repeat the 1984 arguments again and again, okay? For example, in United States, um, in about mid 2000, there was an agreement around something called E911. So in the United States, when we call the number 911, it goes to an emergency center and they send help, such as an ambulance or firefighter or police. Now, as we switched from landlines to, to smartphone, it became difficult to send the help because smartphone locations were not easily traced. So there was a law passed and which basically says that in case a person is dialing 911, uh, we should all agree that the location of that person should be available to emergency management folks so that they can get the help to that person quickly. Right? So a law was passed and this is a very nice, uh, you can say, consensus across national security or public security and civil society. Now, we actually have gone further. Uh, in fact, around um, about seven, eight years ago, particularly Hurricane Sandy timeframe, another law was passed which basically said that even if you don't press anything on your phone, right? So you are not asking for help. However, based on your smartphone location, if we know you are near a hazard, such as a tornado or a flash flood, right? Or a sandstorm, then the public uh, safety or security authorities uh, should be allowed to warn you. So they can send you a wireless emergency alert to tell you that you are near a hazard, even when you didn't ask for it, right? And we have all agreed, at least in the United States, that that's a reasonable trade-off between location privacy and uh, you know, national security or uh, community. Right? So these are just two perspectives. Now we should also acknowledge that there is another third perspective, which is very important in this space. And that's the perspective of business and what I call prosperity. It turns out this location traces data is extremely valuable, right? If we can negotiate the you know, civil society and national perspective, uh, security perspective carefully. For example, McKinsey, a, a 2012 McKinsey big data report projected a value of $600 billion per year from location traces data. Uh, and a lot of that is related to saving you know, fuel waste or uh, you know, facilitating services like ride sharing. Right? This is an enormous number um, and it can create lots of jobs and it can improve quality of our lives if we can all come to some common ground uh, and, and develop acceptable use cases, right? So, so where I stand, I think the three sides need to have a conversation. They should not be talking at each other and lecturing each other, rather than they should come together and find some acceptable common ground because that is in the public interest and that is the common good. Yeah, I think I would add that, you know, when you mentioned that there are billions of users of spatial computing, 
uh, thinking back to what we talked about at the top, you know, not all of us are um, professional athletes working on a soccer pitch or brain surgeons or studying Mars. But if you have a smartphone, you're a user of spatial technology, right? So all, most of the apps that you're using every day on your phone have an element of spatial computing in them. You know, even the voice memo that I'm using to record this conversation, the way it uh, initially wants to record this conversation is with a marker of my street on there, that it's coming from Berkeley Avenue. So not only that, but think about all of the store apps that are on your phone that are asking you, that are, are actually mostly automatically prompting you to choose the store or giving you, is this the store that's closest to you? Um, the movie listings will list the closest theater to you and the weather app provides you with the weather that's closest to you. So we're all using these technologies, whether we realize that we're using them or not. And that's where we get these billions of users around the world. And because we may not realize that we're using them, we may not realize the trade-offs that we're making in our personal privacy by giving out this information. And there isn't a lot of consumer transparency from the app makers and the phone makers of how they're using this information either. So along with the, the, the trade-offs and the agreements that Shashi's talking about, I think there's a role for consumer advocacy which may be able to result in faster action uh, in getting more transparency from these uh, corporations that use our data as we advocate and say, I wanna know what you're using my data for and why you need it and how it's helpful to me. So I just wanted to add one other thing. Uh, and this conversation across different groups has actually advanced during the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, in last few weeks, more than a dozen states in the um, United States have taken another step. So governors in these steps have signed executive orders to make the location data, uh, as well as the disease uh, infection data, which is pr primarily available to public health. Now that data is being shared with the first responders. So the police, ambulance, firefighters are also able to know the house addresses with positive test cases. And it has been done in a very careful manner with lots of checks and balances. So for, as for example, AS, ACLU said, you know, that the service should not be denied to the people who are infected. And then these things are limited only during the emergency. So I think you know, these conversations are moving forward. And, and I think in coming days, all three sectors will come together more often to find common ground. Right, and I, even when you were talking about the app that you're working on, Shashi, um, I think what's interesting is that the way that that getting the location data is through Bluetooth as opposed to GPS. And part of the reason for that is because we can't preserve location privacy if we use GPS as a tool, but we can do it if we use Bluetooth as the tool. And so there are ways to, um, to acknowledge and respect privacy while still getting the results that we, we want and we need. Yeah. I think you've touched on it a little bit there, but I thought maybe just to kind of cap off what it is you've spoken about, I think the main concerns seem to be over things like ownership and access. And I was wondering how you feel a kind of, is there a route whereby there is a compromise? Because I mean, what you're saying about prosperity and the use for business is uh, completely valid. And it's no doubt that data produces a huge amount of growth for industry and produces jobs and all that kind of thing. But equally, is there a model whereby consumer there's a kind of commons for data where 
there's a there's a trade-off of responsibility and transparency and those that use it uh, that they have to kind of use it as service to those people who are essentially providing a commodity to those institutions how do you how do you feel about that do you think that's a yeah no that that's that's an excellent point and uh, you know if you put your business hat on uh, prosperity or business they often think in terms of transactions right so there is some kind of a trade right and each party should know what they are trading and it should be a fair trade right that, that's the right way to do and i think there is i would say there is has not been as much formal progress on that but people have been talking about a number of mechanisms so you can see papers from for example microsoft and others who have talked about trying to create some kind of a market for this data um, and so there are a number of proposals so number one you know we should both sides should realize what uh, is the value of things they are trading and uh, we should come up you know come with some common agreements so for example the value derived from personal location data it probably makes sense to share that value with the people who are actually giving the data and and at the same time make sure that the businesses have a revenue model so they can also proceed right um so there i think societal agreements are still not um, there in so to say okay uh, but discussions are happening people are talking about some kind of a marketplace where uh, people whose location trace data has value can opt in and say that you know i'm willing to give this data and in return i expect this kind of a value whether it is in my benefit i get emergency services or i get you know um, navigation services or and so on uh, or i want additional monetary value right and then the other side the prosperity or business side could kind of come back and say this is what we may be willing to offer you a pay because this is the kind of money that can be made currently and of course there is a role for government again there to make sure that such agreements are fair to everybody and it's in public good uh, so number of discussions have started um, our event 2012 workshop on spatial computing at national academy had a very interesting discussion on this sort uh, of course you know there are some archaic view you know some people from business side sometimes say oh consumers don't care you give them a few dollars and they will give up all the data and that i think is a uh, is a naive conversation i think for sustainable prosperity models it should be more transparent we should all come and say look here is the value and here are different ways to split the value among the people who are bringing value to the table right uh, and i look forward to these maturing in coming years i think i would add also that we've made we as consumers have been making that trade off uh frequently when we we you know click on that a lengthy user agreement that most of us are not reading right before we accept because we want to use the service of the app or the tool that we've downloaded or are using anywhere um and so you could make a case that that's the way of getting that acceptance but there isn't a lot of transparency for the consumer in how they're using the information that they're giving and i would say that i think that um consumers are becoming more savvy about the data that's being collected on them and seeing how it's being shared and what it's being used and uh hopefully we are less likely to just sign it away in order to use something mm i guess transparency also has to come with accountability as well so even if you've engaged in that trade off with facebook for example you can hold them accountable when you know 
users aren't happy with the way in which they treat, I don't know, far right conspiracy pages or, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but um, I mean, perhaps straying slightly off of the specific spatial damage to this, but I think it's, um, it's really important that people are literate about what it is they're actually trading off in these transactions, which I think is why a primer on this subject, such as the one you two have written together, is, is really helpful. Yeah, no, I think absolutely people need to know. I and mean, this technology has taken off so fast that it's um, not many people have realized what the value is, right? We all probably understand the value it, it gives us, right? Because we use navigation apps. We use ride-sharing apps. So clearly we feel that it's valuable to us. We, we are using 911 and we get help. And some of us have received wireless emergency alert. But uh, as you said, probably the business value, that $600 billion per year, and that's a large number, that's bigger than annual revenues of you know, all US companies. Maybe Aramco in Saudi Arabia may have bigger revenue. So very few people realize that. And there is another National Academy report coming out, it came out last year, which is looking at uh, remote sensing imagery. And the value they projected is even bigger. So, um, so I think in broad society, that you know, probably not many people are aware of these large values. And, and it's uh, important for them to kind of see the big picture, not just personal consumer view, but also the prosperity view. And as well as national security view, it's important for people to see that uh, if they share some of this information during emergencies, it can be public benefit, you know, good. So, so towards that, I think you know our uh, book talks about many of these angles. You know, I think in the conclusion we talk about the three stakeholders in, in great detail, and we also mention the civil society view uh, beyond privacy. In fact, you know, the acronym FATE is being used by um, many um, researchers. So F is fairness, right? So this technology should not be used to discriminate against any group. Right? Um, A is accountability. So when we come to some of these agreements, then um, the entities who are managing it should be accountable. Um, T is transparency. So, um, so there should be some way for people to understand what is being done at the national security agencies or at the businesses so that they can you know, um, make sure that it is in interest of everyone. And E stands for ethics. So beyond these issues, there are other ethical issues. Actually, Pamela brought up one of them. Many of us, when we look at the maps, you know, maps used to come from authorities, right? If you go back a few hundred years, the kings made maps. And today, these, you know, even last century, the government agencies made maps and they took extreme care to make sure the information was as accurate as possible. But in this century, many maps are being made through crowdsourcing and your quality guarantees are not as good. Even the Johns Hopkins map Pamela mentioned, the data is coming from many different countries and they all count the numbers very differently. The number of tests they have conducted is very different, right? So when we look at maps today, um, we have to be more sophisticated in interpreting them. You know, there are certain comparisons you can do. For example, within a country, if you compare, you know, last week versus this week in Johns Hopkins map, that's probably more meaningful. However, if you are comparing one country to the next, uh, probably not because the way they count things are very different, right? 
Uh, and there are other issues with maps. You know, another one which has affected public life in United States a lot is the issue of gerrymandering. Uh, you have seen that election results can be manipulated by changing the uh, boundaries of electoral districts, right, or congressional seats. So it has, you know, some of the states, a minority can actually get the majority of seats but just by redrawing the boundaries, right? Now it turns out that gerrymandering doesn't only affect election results. You can affect many other statistics by changing the boundaries, right? So when you derive statistics out of maps, you know, this is another thing people should realize. You should pay very careful attention to the boundaries of the units, whether they are counties or zip codes, and ask yourself whether the results derived from the given boundaries were representative. If I change the boundaries, will the result change and how much, right? Uh, and it has ramification on many, many parts of the society. You know, for example, uh, inequality, right, which is a big issue all over the place now. And people often use census data to compute inequality measures like Gini functions. Um, and we don't, you know, many of people don't realize that if you're using census, you are getting an underestimate of the Gini function, right? And if you change the boundaries or, or the units, the errors may vary, right? So, so there are a lot of other ethical issues which come in the play, and our book actually goes quite a bit into gerrymandering and these kinds of issues. Um, I think I was also going to add, um, wasn't there some cancer research that you had done that showed that when you changed the boundaries, um, you, it, it impacted the results and the rates of, of cancer uh, occurrences in some, county, some counties, and I believe it was Texas as well. So yes. it's not just elections, but it's actually fundamentally how we find um, and report out research and data. Right, you know, so this example refers to correlations. You know, if you want to look at correlation between spatial attributes, for example, cancer locations and environmental risks, right? Or even in case of COVID-19, if you want to relate COVID-19 cases and the environment, for example, urban density, right? Um, if you divide the data by zip code or census blocks, your results could be affected, right? So, so these are some subtle issues, and the freight umbrella, the ethics is a broader issue, and there are some very specific spatial nuances to using spatial data for computing correlations or doing other kind of aggregates like elections and so on. So machine learning, data mining, statistics, all those communities, you know, they have not paid attention to spatial as much, and they need to realize that gerrymandering applies to lots of their methods, you know, like association rule, the result will change completely, or correlation, the result will change completely based on the choice of these boundaries. And the book, in some sense, you know, brings up this debate. Um, and people who are studying data science, it's a very popular academic degree and program right now. Uh, I think it's important for every data science major or minor or professional to have some awareness of these spatial issues. Um, otherwise, you know, they may take geographic data with certain boundaries and derive certain results using traditional data mining or machine learning, and without realizing that those results were dependent on the choice of the boundaries, right? So last year, uh, University Consortium on Geographic Information Systems came out with a call for action to include a geospatial perspective in every data science degree and curriculum. So yeah, this topic um, I think is of very current interest and you know, not just to consumers, 
or to governments or to businesses, but anyone who is interested in data science, you know, as an academician or, or as in his career. Yeah. Pamela, have you got anything you'd like to add before we finish up? No, I think I'm good. Thank you. Oh, okay, great. Well, thank you both for speaking to me today. It's been really insightful, as well as the book itself is really clear and insightful on this issue. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Sam, for giving us the opportunity. More than welcome. Anyways, thanks very much.